0: News
1: Power Hour. Yeah, here we are on Tuesday, the 19th of October, uh, less than three months to go for the rest of the year. And uh, your hour of power tonight is going to be focusing on lots of interesting information. Kicking off with the first of our interviews with the mayoral candidates for the battleground city, that's Johannesburg. We've got three uh, political parties who are going to be vying for Ascendancy here. Former Mayor Herman Mashaba, who was the DA mayor, did a fantastic job against corruption, then left the party and the mayoral position, is going to be talking to us a little later about his plans for uh, the city when he wins. He says uh, he's been telling us it's not just a question of perhaps winning. He says the polls are showing him in front, and we will be kicking off with him. My colleague, uh, Tim Modise will be interviewing the other two mayors in the next couple of days. So you'll be getting a very good insight if you live in Johannesburg on who you should be voting for, if you live elsewhere in the country on uh, what's actually going down in the city of gold. Also, coming up tonight, we will be hearing more from our partners at the Bureau for Investigative Journalism on the Smokescreen series. It gets pretty deadly tonight, uh, where we hear about a murder and all kinds of skullduggery that has been linked to British-American tobacco and the shenanigans that are going on in the South African tobacco industry. Our partners in London at the Financial Times uh, will be sharing something even more shocking, the Chinese hypersonic glide vehicles, which have caught the Americans completely by surprise and have the ability to transform warfare into the future. They tested one of these yesterday and Beijing is celebrating, Washington is concerned. The Financial Times will give us an insight into that. And then we go off to the Northwest Province to talk to uh, the chief executive of the Chamber of Commerce there and the head of the business school on a investigation that has been done into businesses, micro and small businesses, in townships, villages, and what they call small dorpies or little towns. And the shocking uh, result of this is that over 60% of the businesses are foreign-owned, but not foreign-owned by uh, the RBMs or Microsoft of the world, but by Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, uh, Somalis, Ethiopians, etc. With the funding, they reckon, after an de- in-depth research, coming from what they call the Chinese Mafia. So there's plenty to keep you uh, close to your radio for the next hour of power. Before we get there, though, my colleague Jared Neves has got uh, some information on what the business community are consuming. In other words, what parts of our network uh, are being best listened to, read, and watched. Jared?
2: I'm Jared Neves, and you are the most accessed stories on the BizNews platforms. On our website, biznews.com, Johan Rupert's listed empire, Remgro, Richemont, and Jaynet is the best read story, followed closely by seven financial reasons to stay in South Africa and the Bitcoin debate, store value or fool's gold? On News TV on YouTube, Magnus Haystack is a community favourite, with Regulation 28 is short-changing retirees being the most watched video. Yesterday's flash briefing and Kofisa chairman rings alarm bells on an Africa spring were also popular with viewers. And finally, on Biz News Radio on Spotify, our most popular podcasts include No More Load Shedding for Cape Town. DA mayoral candidate Jordan Hill-Lewis explains how. People are Simply Retiring with Not Enough Money by Magnus Haystick and Koki Koeman Jank's essay, Banks. And two stocks are standouts for value investors.
1: Brilliant. Thanks, Jared. And that certainly does give you a taste of what you can pick up on the Biz News Network right now and what, uh, well, the major part of our community are reading.
2: This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs mesh to life insurance that changes as your life changes. In a watershed moment for
3: crypto, the first ever Bitcoin linked ETF will start trading on the New York Stock Exchange today. The exchange traded fund launched by ProShares will trade under the ticker symbol BITO and will invest primarily in Bitcoin futures contracts rather than Bitcoin itself. ProShares CEO Michael Saper said investors have been eagerly awaiting the launch of a Bitcoin linked ETF after years of efforts to launch one. The Bitcoin Futures ETF will be bought and sold like a stock and will not require investors to hold an account at a cryptocurrency exchange or to have a crypto wallet. However, despite strong demand for the new asset, financial advisors urge investors to practice caution before adding Bitcoin Futures ETFs to their portfolios. According to the Bloomberg Billionaire's Index, Tesla and SpaceX CEO Elon Musk regained the title of the world's richest person on Friday thanks to Tesla's soaring stock. Tesla's shares were up 3% on Friday, boosting Musk's net worth to $236 billion and surpassing Amazon founder Jeff Bezos' fortune of $196 billion. Musk's net worth rose by $60 billion in 2021 alone, with aerospace manufacturer SpaceX being named the second most valuable private company in the world. Musk says he hopes his fortune will be enough to extend life to Mars. South Africa's tourism sector, which has taken a severe beating during the COVID-19 pandemic, could get a boost from extended weekends. Low-cost airline FlySafair wants the Public Holidays Act to change by moving midweek public holidays to Monday or Friday. According to the domestic airline, long weekends promote travel, and this tweak could help the tourism sector's recovery. FlySafe reported that its passenger volumes increased by more than 20% over long weekends, and while SA's removal from the UK's red list could mean an influx of foreign visitors over the summer holidays, FlySafe says more can be done to promote domestic travel. The proposal has been tabled with the Tourism Business Council of South Africa, and once it has been reviewed and approved, the airline hopes to lobby the Department of Tourism to bring the motion before Parliament.
1: Thank you, Claire. Let's find out how the markets have been going. Justin Rowe Roberts should be holding forward for us just now, Justin.
4: Holding forward somewhat, Alec. The JSE All Share Index was up at 67,000. In the currency markets, the RAND was stronger against all the major currencies to 14 RAND 58 cents to the dollar, 20 RAND 13 cents to the pound, and 16 RAND 98 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,781 an ounce. Kruger Rand will cost around 27,500 Rand, Brent crude is flat at $84.50 a barrel, and Bitcoin is trading slightly over 915,000 Rand per coin. In the financial news, two of Transport's port terminals remain operational despite a fire outbreak two weeks ago at Richards Bay Multipurpose Terminal, Africa's largest coal export facility, and more recently at Durban's Grand Export Terminal at the Maiden Wharf Precinct. Transnet says it has deployed its technical team to assess the extent of the damage, and although no injuries were reported, it says investigations are underway and a broad broad inquiry is being set up to determine the root cause of the fires.
1: It's funny, that Transnet story, and uh, if you talk to the guys in the mining sector, Justin, there's great concerns that once again uh, South Africa is going to miss out on this big commodities boom, Tungela Resources or the uh, coal company being one of the most highly affected
4: Exactly. Uh, uh, Transnet have declared force majeure at one of their terminals and Tungela have come out and said that they are losing heaps in revenue. Coal thermal prices are the highest they've been at years. They've just climbed climbed 10% in China today and they're not able to get the benefit of it.
1: Let's hope that that sorts itself out in the near future.
2: This market report was made just for you by Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
0: Today is Tuesday, October 19th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Japan doesn't want to be outmatched by high-tech competitors, so it's refocusing its semiconductor prowess. And China's hypersonic missile test
5: has rattled the U.S. The Chinese are becoming very, very technologically advanced, and the gap between the U.S. and China is shrinking. And in some cases, China may even get a little bit ahead. But first, Bitcoin could be coming to a broker
0: near you. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Today on the New York Stock Exchange, we'll see the first listing of an exchange-traded fund linked to Bitcoin. ETFs are funds that track an index or some other asset, and today's listing is expected to be the first of many ETFs linked to cryptocurrency. Steve Johnson covers ETFs for the Financial Times.
6: I think the key thing here is this potentially opens the market up to a lot more investors. Um, at, at the moment, crypto currency, I think, largely have largely been bought by uh, younger, more tech-savvy investors who are comfortable with uh, the technology involved, comfortable uh, with maybe the risk involved. This launch brings the accessibility uh, of Bitcoin into a regulated structure. For the first time, uh, investors in their 401ks and their IRAs will be able to have an allocation to, to Bitcoin, at least via the futures market. And it will be available, uh, these ETFs will be available via brokerage account in the same way as any ETF or, or, or share is at the present.
0: So, Steve, uh, regulators at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission have been you know, pretty hard on cryptocurrency, but they did not block this listing. Um, why do you think they are allowing a cryptocurrency ETF?
6: I, I think they're very comfortable with this particular structure. The Bitcoin futures uh, trade on the, on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. They're regulated by the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, uh, and the SEC seems very comfortable that, as a regulated product, this is fine. I imagine as well that you know incre- they have increasingly come under pressure. We've seen ETFs launched uh, in a variety of other countries, including Canada. We've seen other vehicles being launched, such as the the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, a private trust. Obviously, a lot of people have invested directly in the cryptos themselves. So I imagine there's a strand of thought that. It's better to provide a regulated product, assuming that you know, some people are going to invest in this, whatever they do.
0: Steve Johnson is the FT's ETF correspondent. The U.S. intelligence and military community was stunned to learn about a recent military test by China. This past August, Beijing tested a nuclear-capable hypersonic missile that circled the globe before landing a couple of dozen miles from its target. Dimitri is the FT's U.S.-China correspondent based in Washington, he broke this story and he joins me now. Hey, Dimitri. Hi, Mark. So, Dimitri, the way I explained it just now, is that more or less what happened or is there more
5: to it? There's a little bit more. So basically, they secretly launched a rocket called the Long March, which is the rocket they use for all their space program stuff. But it carried something called a hypersonic glide vehicle into space lower orbit. It went around the Earth. It came down on its target. And as you said, it missed. But what's really interesting is that they seem to have tested two new capabilities. One is called Fractional Orbital Bombardment System, which is very scary but in a nutshell, what it means is you can send missiles over the South Pole, which is important because most U.S. missile defenses are geared towards missiles that come over the North Pole. And then the, the hypersonic glide vehicle, and a way to think about that is almost it, it kind of flies like a space shuttle and that you can maneuver it and fly it and steer around things. That then comes down into the Earth's atmosphere and approaches its target. So this hypersonic glide vehicle you're talking about, is it a game changer? Well, it's not a game changer in the sense that it has pros and cons, but it does two things. First of all, it shows that the Chinese are making faster advancements in hypersonic weapons than the Americans assumed but, you know, the Americans are also testing and developing hypersonic weapons, as are the Russians and even the, uh, the North Koreans. So I don't think it's a game changer. It's not a Sputnik moment, uh, from history, but it is another sign that the Chinese are becoming very, very technologically advanced and the gap between the US and China is shrinking. And in some cases, China may even get a little bit ahead. Dimitri, what impact could this have on US policy towards China? Well, I think, first of all, it's going to strengthen concerns among those in Washington who think that the U.S. needs to do more to make sure that it stays ahead of China. But in a kind of a more broader significance, this technology or the capability that they've tested means that essentially they can deliver a nuclear-capable missile to anywhere in the world, which means that more of the U.S. is potentially vulnerable to a Chinese attack Now, that's going to play into a debate that's happening in Washington at the moment. The Biden administration is conducting what's called a nuclear posture review, which is something that Congress mandates that all administrations do, to work out what its nuclear policy should be, how many nuclear weapons it should have and and deploy. And I think that the revelations that China has made more developments in hypersonics is going to play into that debate and probably give more ammunition to those who are arguing that you shouldn't reduce your nuclear stockpile and that you should actually modernize your nuclear stockpile uh, much more quickly than has been done at the
0: moment. Dimitri Sevastopoulos is the FT's U.S.-China correspondent. Thanks, Dimitri. Thank you, Mark. In Japan, there's a growing sense of crisis about the country's vulnerability to competitive threats. Japan used to be the world's leading microchip manufacturer. Eventually, it was taken over by the U.S. and China. The country's new prime minister wants to address this concern, so he's created a new post. The FT's Tokyo bureau chief, Kana Inagaki, spoke to Japan's new minister for economic security. His name is Takayuki Kobayashi.
7: In her interview, Kobayashi said the economic security measures that he's going to oversee are not directed specifically at China. But China is clearly relevant to why the role was created, since it is about how Japan will remain globally competitive, as, you know, major economies such as Washington and Beijing wage technology wars and compete to build autonomous supply chains and chips and other areas of significance to national security.
0: So what did he say his priorities would be?
7: He said his main priority is for the government to be able to identify the essential technologies that the country needs to protect and, you know, promote to ensure that it remains both relevant and what he called indispensable to the international community. He believes that only then can Japan obtain technologies from other friendly nations to build, you know, self-sufficient chip supply chains.
0: And did the supply chain disruptions during the pandemic add to the sense of crisis? Was it like a Uh, like a wake-up call for Japan?
7: Yes, it's similar to what's happening in the U.S. and Europe. I mean, the global chip shortage caused by COVID-19 exposed Japan's vulnerability in securing key key technologies. What Japan is trying to do is not just um, support the Japanese industries, but it's trying to invite companies from overseas to help Japan build these supply chains. So in those cases, the government is planning to provide pretty you know, generous subsidies to persuade these companies to come to Japan. But obviously, other countries like the U.S. and China are also giving pretty significant sums of money. So it's going to be very competitive.
0: And one example of Japan working with overseas chip makers is that big Taiwanese chip maker, TSMC, that we've talked a lot about on the show. It's actually planning to build a factory in Japan, right, Kana?
7: Yes. Yeah, so the Japanese government actually succeeded in persuading TSMC you know, the world's largest contract manufacturer to build a new fab in the country. And it's considered quite a big coup. But Kobayashi was telling us in an interview that, you know, the success with TSMC is really just the first step. And they really need to keep on doing these kind of strategies.
0: Kana Inagaki is the FT's Tokyo bureau chief. You can read more on all of these stories at ft.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
1: Herman Mashaba is on the campaign trail. I see your posters everywhere, Herman. Mashaba for mayor. When you last had posters like this all over Johannesburg, they were in blue. Now they're in green. Does it feel much different, being uh, the head of your own party, looking to become mayor of the largest city in the country?
8: Much, much uh, better. Uh, obviously, uh, I mean, at the time in 2016, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I thought um, D&I wanted to unseat the ANC and save this country and, uh, and uh, create a non-racial South Africa that the ANC has divided us and uh, uh, continued looting. Unfortunately, three years into my marriage, he discovered uh, that uh, there are certain elements within the DA who are on the far right of the Freedom Front Plus, and uh, that's really something disappointing for me, quite sad, but I've learned, um, and uh, that's what my grandfather taught me uh, to uh, growing up, uh, to always listen to people, give them a chance, but believe what people do than what they say, and... Um, Unfortunately, it's actually quite sad. The the DA matter. actually it's one of those sad things in in my life, and it'll be written many times in 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 history about when people can really be so disingenuous and be so be to be open liars and uh, and not uh, be prepared uh, to fix this broken country of ours.
1: How are you as mayor? Going to transform this city of ours, which has such great potential, but has really been lagging badly in recent times due to, well, you don't have to tell us about the corruption because you
8: uncovered a lot of it when you were mayor there. Well, I think, uh, 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 Alec, I really want the people of Johannesburg to bear with me because uh, this time around, and fortunate enough, the polls are coming out quite clear that uh, we are going to be the government in, in Johannesburg. Um, and I'm working hard uh, to ensure that we can govern on our own or with other smaller parties. But one thing for sure is, is that uh, we are going to be part of the government of the city of Johannesburg. And we are going to be the big up party. The first thing I'm going to do, Alec, and I want people of Johannesburg to know, I've got to immediately get rid of uh, this ANC cadres who are running the administration. They sabotaged me the first time around uh, because I did not really understand uh, the terrain. This time, Alec, I've got three years' experience as the, as executive. May I'm not going there blind. Um, uh, I can tell you this: uh, what I call snakes. Uh, I want people to really know that I am decisively and legally going to flush them out of the system and allow South Africans, uh, white, black, male, female who are prepared to work for for government to really be given the opportunity to serve our country. That's going to be the first um, order of business because uh, if you don't create a, 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 a... uh, the professional public service, you are not going to serve with pride. You are not going to allow a situation where people are in jobs because of what uh, what they know. People must be in the jobs because of the skills that they bring to the party because when you do that, who's the beneficiary? Are the poor black people. As I've indicated to you, people of Mapopane used to walk to the factory. Look at uh, what's happening today in that area. You have up to 70-80% unemployment. When factories like uh, mine should have been uh, 10 times bigger, Karankwam, Babilek Industrial Areas, ANC and COSA, to close them down one after the other. So we need to really create uh, a culture and an environment where the private sector can flourish. We need to take back those buildings from uh, these international syndicates working with the ANC. I'm going to actually, I can tell you, I'm going to be leading this raids myself. Um, to make sure that I can inspire our policemen and women. We'll work with JMPD, we'll work with subs, and we'll work with the courts to ensure that we take back those buildings that are hijacked, some of them by criminal syndicates working with the senior ANC people. We've got to take them back, give them to the private sector for nothing so that I can give them incentives to invest in our cities rebuild accommodation for our people, uh, small business hubs, so that the city of Johannesburg uh, can can be at, uh, the place we can one day actually call home, unlike how the ANC has tended into, in, into a slum. Yes, obviously, we, you have to fight corruption at all costs. That is not negotiable. In the city of Johannesburg, you have... Um, this uh, city owned entities like City Power, Job Water. You know, one thing I discovered uh, that uh, when I was the mayor, that uh, these uh, entities are just a liability to, uh, to the ratepayers because, uh, firstly, they cost uh, in, in board fees 30, mi- 30 million rands in uh, board directors' fees because ANC created this uh, for the cadres uh, to create, firstly, jobs for cadres, secondly, for the cadres to go and cor- create corruption. I want to collapse this as a matter of agency. I tried to do it the last time and the snakes uh, uh, sabotaged that that process of the institutional review. The sooner I can uh, collapse uh, these entities so that I can take away this layer of unnecessary bureaucracy. I want you, Alec, when you call uh, the city having a problem with your electricity, You don't have to go to, you call the mayor, the mayor must call the city manager, the city manager must call the chairman of of city power, the chairman of city power must call the MD of city power before the job can be resolved. I want you, when you call the city, there must be the the city manager straight to um, executive director of electricity utilities, water, uh, someone who's an engineer with the team, but I don't need a board. Why do we need a board for? With the, uh, for? So we, we need to collapse uh, these entities as a matter of agency.
1: When we spoke uh, some months ago when Action SA was first started, you said it's going to take a long time to fix what the ANC has destroyed in South Africa. And you warned us. You said even if you took over today as the president of the country, this is a long road. Is Johannesburg a little easier perhaps to fix than the country as a whole? And and I'm just trying to get your idea of, as the head of a, a party, a political party, which is national, which is now fighting around the country, why it is that you personally have decided that you want to go into the mayor's office in Johannesburg?
8: I think, uh, first of all, Alec, there is just no way that you can fix Johannesburg in five or ten years. Uh, Johannesburg. Uh, remember when I took over? The first thing, one of the first things I did was to do the study of the infrastructure backlog. At the time, 170 billion runs worth of infrastructure backlog. Because uh, ANC, I don't know whether they forgot or they didn't know that infrastructure, when uh, and it needs maintenance, it needs to be upgraded. It does not need name changes. Because what they did uh, focus on, they go to work every day to go and look at names of buildings and streets that they must change and still. And then in the meantime, um, people are coming into Johannesburg. Some of the, the electricity substations, are you aware that are 50, 60 years old? With no, uh, you can't even get space or engineers that obviously understands this. So you can imagine when you've got, uh, right now I'm telling you, uh, I'm, I will do that study again as a matter of agency. At least right now I've got a foundation. I can tell you right now, looking at where the last two years I've left, the way things have regressed, I can tell you, infrastructure backlog in the city of Johannesburg will be close to 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 200 billion. And now, look at uh, the Joburg financials. What do we? How much do we have in terms of uh, uh, capex? Eight billion. (laughs) So now, can I say I've got a I've got a 200 billion rent hole. I've got eight billion rents. So the sooner I can start, obviously, uh, saving money. Uh, the moving uh, the some of uh, the niceties of the ANC into 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 projects so that we can uh, upgrade our infrastructure. And you can imagine, as a country, because we're in a junk status, so basically to going into the financial markets to go and raise funding—it's not going to be easy, more especially for the city when the whole country um, is about to collapse. So we, we've got a huge challenge, but. I'm positive that we can still fix this but let us start first by removing Joburg. Why I went into Joburg is the biggest metro, the biggest city in the country is the commercial hub. Obviously by taking Johannesburg you've neutralized ANC corruption. You've taken you've uh, uh, because what they do that puts ANC together is uh, state resources. So once you can take um, these three metros, Johannesburg, Katswane, and Ikurulene, I'm telling you, uh, it is given that uh, 2024 is going to be a walkover because there's not going to be anyone. Because 90% plus, if I'm really being positive, 90% plus of people who are in the ANC, 90% of them are, are in this business for corrupt purposes, not for public service. So if we remove them from these three metros, I can tell you it will be easy because by 2024, ANC will, 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 will be uh, worse off because they won't have anyone left.
9: How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities, and by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why. South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply.
1: Well, one of the forgotten parts of South Africa is what is happening outside of the major cities. Last week, uh, the former head of the Institute for Race Relations, Franz Cronier, did a trip around KwaZulu-Natal, and we're going to be hearing more about uh, some of the chaotic circumstances that has happened with the small towns in KZN after the rioting in July. But the northwest province didn't have riots, and yet there's similar problems that are being found in Klein uh the small towns, in the townships and in villages. And Andre Kutzen, who's the chief executive of the Northwest Chamber of Commerce and Industry, uh, joins us now, along with Professor Ronnie Lutrit from the Northwest University, who's the author of a 46-page report that was commissioned by the Department of Economic Development. I suppose the good thing about this, Andre, is that the Department of Economic Development has actually commissioned a report in the first place to try and find out what the heck is going on.
10: Yeah, what happened, Alex, is that I said to one of, I think it was Melissa Patel or somebody, that they want to regulate the, the informal settlement, but they, have, they don't know what's going on on the ground. And I said that research must be done, and that is why they asked us if we could do it, and then we said, yes, okay, we'll do it. And, uh, yeah, that's the report I sent to you, but it, it doesn't make for good reading.
1: It certainly doesn't. Ronnie, do you have any idea that things were that bad within the Dorpies and, and the townships and villages in the northwest province?
9: First of and foremost, uh, you know, I, I'm always saying if you don't know how sick the patient is, what type of re- remedy do you give it to it? And, and another thing was, um, you know, it's still a apartheid of some sort because... Uh, Almost none of these township businesses are, uh, are integrating in any way through, through the mainstream economy. I was also taken aback by that, in the, in, 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 and that is that the township economy, and remember this was only a pilot, we, 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 we had about 120 interviews, I think 102 of them were actually valid, it's in the hands of foreigners. That that was quite astonishing, and by by a big margin, I think something like 61% is foreign owned. What's even more uh, of a, of a challenge for the relevant authorities is to to take acknowledgement of the fact that these foreign owned township businesses, there's no transfer of skills. Look, I'm always happy to say that uh, uh, it's not anti anti-foreigners. I'm always happy to say these guys come, they bring some skills But But the problem is is Alec, no transfer of skill happens. They employ their own families. What was also very interesting is that the local cuisine, I think it's logical, we, we supply the Fed cook um, and the products is so unbeneficiated that we are into personal services, services, South Africans now. Uh, grooming of hair, doing a personal care, those things, but no value-added happening in the process.
1: It's so interesting to read that, and when you talk about foreigners, I didn't see Chinese names there, and we'll get back to that in a moment, but just to go through the list, Ethiopians and Somalis own the spaza shops, Zimbabweans and Mozambicans dominate trucking, Basutus do the building and tailoring, Nigerians, the saloons and shabins. These are people who've come from other Countries who, who don't necessarily even speak uh, the, the local languages. André, uh, again, from your perspective, isn't there something that the Chamber of Commerce can be doing with a local South Africans to enter these markets, or are they just so tied up that there isn't a way in?
10: What, what I'm trying to do is, is, in conjunction with the Northwest University Business School and our president, we had a meeting with him a week ago, on Friday, he was here and he met with, with the Northwest Chamber of Commerce. I'm going to go back to him and ask him for money uh, to train our unemployed youth that's got grade 12 at this stage, to train them how to start their own little businesses. The The biggest problem here, Alec, is that my question is very simple. How does this is a guy from Bangladesh that doesn't have a job, He's, he sits there because... The answers why did you come to South Africa? And they clearly said the job opportunities. Now, they, we know, me and you know, there is no such thing. Where does he get 10,000 rands for a plane ticket to come to South Africa? That's my first question. My second question is, and I asked that to the DG of uh, Home Affairs. Sir, how many Pakistanis are in South Africa? He said he doesn't know. And he's a very nice guy. And I said, how many is left after the holiday visa? He said, he doesn't know. Then, I don't know whether you remember a while back, they caught that one woman at the South African embassy or something in Windhoek, issuing a thousand visas to Pakistanis. Now, you, you say Chinese. The whole industry is run by the Chinese mafia. That's what I call them now. Because they bring these people in, these people work for them. He has to stay in that little spaza shop and the money gets taken. He gets, say, 500 rands to live off and the rest presumably are sent to his family. That's what they say. But behind all this is the Chinese mafia. Uh, Unfortunately, that's the truth. I can take you there, you will see. Because a lot of these guys, if you if you ask him who owns this shop, he said the boss. Now, the boss is that guy from Johannesburg. And uh, their products, as you know, comes from Joburg. It, it is carted in buckies and things. You see them on the road a lot. So, unfortunately, these guys are controlled by the Chinese mafia.
1: So, so let's understand that the, the Bangladeshis and Pakistanis, and you may, I didn't mention that, but they're also uh, very much re- mentioned in your report. The Ethiopians, the Zimbabweans, Mozambicans, Somalis, they are working for the Chinese who are themselves controlling the rural areas in South Africa and presumably quite a big part of the metropolitan areas as well. Professor Lotrit, this is like crazy stuff. You'd have to wonder. A, how all of these foreign nationals came into the country, and B, where the capital comes from for the Chinese to have such a huge enterprise that the authorities certainly don't seem to know about.
9: Exactly that, Alec. Um, I, I think more than that is to remember, um, like I said uh, alluded to earlier, no, no transfer skills is happening. We we, we all know it's, uh, it's almost a cliche that we need to be entrepreneurs, but... All the let's say semi-government, government uh, institutions are so the, the the approach are so fragmented. And remember, we're talking about grassroots level. The guy that's that's in Maritsane would not know, and the, the assistance doesn't reach him or anyway. So in that case, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's a big problem. It's it's actually like I said, we talk about state capture. The, the township economy has been captured by, by foreigners. And, and, and once again, it's not anti, being anti-foreigner. The, the big thing is teacher skills. Remember these guys, I almost want to say, Alec, like they, they, they're operating a closed economy on their own. They procure from, a, from the, the form cartels. They, they procure from them. And, and then the money, let's, let's talk West province. Then the money is repatriated on a very, very, very regular basis either to Gauteng or overseas. So uh, I think partly the reason for that is is the looting and stuff that happened the last number of years is also a safety precaution. And one of the number one concerns, irrespective of your nationality, is obviously security and safety for for these uh, small and micro businesses.
1: The social impact as well, as you detail in your report, is, is quite horrific. Foreigners sleep with local women in exchange for groceries. Wow.
9: I thought bartering was over and done with, uh, but that is that's some of the notes we picked up that we couldn't really say this was the source of information, etc. So, so there's a, a few sensitive aspects, but that is it's like Hollywood movies
1: incredible drug dealing. Selling of expired goods, illegal sale of cigarettes. Surely there's enough of a treasure chest here for the authorities in just foregone taxes, just forget about customs and excise, just mm-hmm. VAT, that they should be paying more attention to all of this, Andre?
10: Alec, that is the, the big problem. Uh, I went to this report to the Gauteng government. I don't know whether you remember. Earlier in the year, um, I think it was Park Stau said that they're going to uh, – Get a, regulations into regulate the small business people. Because that's what we told them. That is must happen. My answer to that is: even if you sell potatoes on the street corner, you have to be registered somewhere, local authority. Not pay for a license or this or register with CIPC. No, just register. You have to have a document in your hand that's a renewable once a, a year, and that document. Uh, is the one that you use if we... In that way, we might pick up who is illegally in the country. Our problem is that nobody is registered. And that's the first one. The second one is how do we police that? And and you know yourself that we need to to have people that won't take a bribe. But um, unfortunately, there's also a big industry where they make driver's licenses, ID cards, passports, anything. You can buy it off somewhere in Johannesburg. You can go and buy that. But but regulation will have to come in and it must be policed.
1: James Ball is the international editor of the Bureau for Investigative Journalism and uh, the compilers of Screen, a series on the tobacco industry in South Africa. James, we're up to episode six. It's uh, quite hectic, this one.
11: So, yeah, yeah. As we're uh, sort of getting towards the end of the uh, the run, and as hopefully people who've been following this story along, we're now looking at some of these people who had been hired or subcontracted by BAT, supposedly as part of this drive against smuggling, but uh, lots of people alleged to spy on their competitors and all of this. And... When you start to look at some of these figures, I mean, not only did they have, I mean, to say the very, very least, checkered pasts, they they also got up to some pretty shady things for BAT, as we kind of learn in this episode.
1: Well, the death or the murder, it's not just death, it's a murder of uh, Marius, one of the operatives. You spoke to uh, Victoria, your colleague, uh, spoke to his wife. I, I thought to begin with, as I was listening to it, that she'd maybe uh, booted him out because it was too dangerous, but she explains in some detail uh, why he's no longer with us. It's it's an extraordinary story, which is now, certainly in this way, becoming deadly serious.
11: It's, I mean, it's, it's a completely horrifying tale. I, I should say, you know, we... We don't know, and nor does nor does his poor widow know uh, Tasha um, why he was killed. His murder was unsolved, but it was this incredibly horrifying sort of moment. Um, a couple of years after his involvement with BAT, when he was, you know, she and he were in their kitchen with several relatives, and two balaclava-clad men ran in, made no requests for robbery or to hand anything over shot him dead and and left and of course you know you can see why given that she wants to talk about things Marius did she clearly wants to know what happened and also if it had any connection to his work um, because no one seems to know and of course it's as as you will of course know it's it's not that unusual to have a unsolved murder of this sort in South Africa but it it did mean, you know, it was very, very hard for Victoria to find people to talk to among Maris's former colleagues. And when you see that backdrop, it's not that hard to understand why.
1: The figures we got yesterday, uh, just to put it in perspective, James, is that there are 62 murders daily in South Africa and a high number of those are due to firearms. So you're right, it's uh, unsolved murders are... Um, not uncommon in this country unfortunately.
11: Yes I think only 12 a day are solved aren't they so there's I mean hundreds a year of, of cases like this one which is is just horrifying to think about of course. Uh,
1: this company FSS it's come up a few times what exactly is it?
11: So it's a private intelligence company. And of course, lots of those exist. There's plenty of them over here in the UK as well. And they tend to be staffed by former policemen. And they try and find things out on behalf of companies that can be as simple as doing due diligence if they're about to hire someone senior, or if they're thinking about buying another company. But it can also be things that are a lot more Uh, sometimes in grey areas, sometimes outright illegal. And people we know who've worked with FSS say that, among other things, they planted tracking devices on the cars of potential rivals as well as potential smugglers. Um, They also seem to have, uh, according to a few allegations we've heard, impersonated police officers, uh, sometimes with the help of real police officers, which is, again, illegal, which if you're engaged in an anti-crime initiative, you would have thought a good start is to stay within the law yourself. Now, obviously, if you're an investigation firm, you're going to hire ex-police officers. But one of the things quite a few people we spoke to, uh, either in the episode or to research the episode, noted that quite a lot of the officers, someone actually said 99% of them in this team, were from Reaction Unit 9, which may be familiar to several of your listeners, but was, of course, quite a notorious um, apartheid-era police unit known for very, very violent tactics. And so you sort of end up asking some questions about who British American Tobacco chose to work with and how much it knew about what they were doing.
1: Not just chose to work with, but fated, as this episode uh, explains. It starts off with uh, some beautiful singing of the Welsh uh, at Cardiff Arms Park, but in the crowd are the two Forcelu brothers, who are um, well central characters now in in the story.
11: Yes, and I mean, this This sort of incident, um, we open at, um, you know, a 2013 huge rugby match in Wales, which was South Africa versus Wales, um, you know, big, big day, Prince William was there, you know, next next monarch of, well, next but one monarch of the UK, unless there are any big news developments in the next few hours. Um You know, there's this wonderful kind of bit of hospitality and uh, these Vosloo brothers, one of whom used to be the captain of Reaction Unit 9, uh, are sitting there with senior BAT executives in the intelligence department. And uh, they're on a real sort of, I'd say, whining and dining trip, but it's beers and rugby. um, But they also meet up with people uh, running a surveillance company who can sell them the kind of trackers they can use on cars that we know they go on to use. One of these Vosloo brothers is the man who um, sort of uh, is said to have recruited Belinda Walter, who is the woman who is at the centre of a lot of our earlier episodes. And so it's not as if they can say they didn't know the the FSS team or they didn't sort of meet them or it was at arm's length. You know, this was a really sort of high-level hospitality trip and, you know, even included a game of golf. James, have you had any feedback from
1: BAT now that more of the episodes are coming to light or indeed a company like FSS uh, or the Foss New Brothers? What kind of response, uh, if any, have you had?
11: So, I mean, after a... I should say a lot of a lot of denials. BAT has consistently denied any wrongdoing. They like to point to a serious fraud office investigation that was dropped against them for lack of enough evidence to to have a good chance of conviction, which they like to say is a sort of total acquittal. Uh, we may have more on that in later episodes, um, but actually, to my surprise, we've had absolute silence from most of the people involved so far. As these have been going out you know we've got a few episodes more and if any people would like to add more or tell us more um we're at tbij.com and you can get in touch with any of us but um no quite just absolute radio silence from them and i think they're sort of hoping if they ignore us we'll go away but um that hasn't really worked out for them so far coming up on smokescreen to make it more official and purposeful,
6: etc., hopefully a company designing beacon tracking devices will attend to show one of the latest and smallest beacons they are designing.
11: Leaked emails reveal how British American Tobacco, or BAT, intended to keep track of their informants.
7: He would tell me to be wary, he would tell me to, you know, just be vigilant.
11: We hear from a woman whose husband paid BAT informants and tracked BAT's competitors.
7: I started noticing people
2: sitting outside the house.
11: It's a dangerous world, no matter whose side you're on.
2: They didn't say a word. They just started shooting and then I screamed.
11: For some, there's no way out of this world of spies and corruption.
8: Our aim was, uh, right in the beginning, get rid of the opposition, intervention, 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 as much as possible to disrupt, disrupt, disrupt.
11: BAT claims they set up this network of informants to crack down on illegal cigarette smuggling. But our investigation revealed a rather different story. Search Smokescreen on your favourite podcast platform to listen to the series so far.
4: I'm Justin Roberts of BizNews, and with me today is Stefano Marani, CEO of emerging energy company Renogen. Yesterday, Renogen announced a deal that would see the creation of a spot market in helium. That'll be the focus of this conversation. But before we get there, could you provide us with some background and context regarding Renogen's operation and focus?
12: Yes. So we've got the country's first and only onshore petroleum production right in South Africa, which is which is quite significant when you when you consider the fact that. Um, that it was awarded to us in 2012 and only now we're going into production so it's um it's a long process in south africa and uh, and whilst the country has gas rights it's it's going to be a while before others come online what makes ours unique there are two attributes that make this field in the free State so enormously unique and the first is that it's got the world's highest concentration of helium with concentrations of up to 12 percent which in context the, the highest concentration of any country by aggregate after us is 0.35%, and that's the United States. Um, and then it goes all the way down to Qatar at 0.01%, so 12% is a big number. The second thing that makes the, the site so unique is the fact that the methane is produced by bacteria which means that it's, for all intent and purposes, essentially a renewable gas. So even though you're drilling for it and methane is considered a fossil fuel, this is actually a renewable resource. and We've got wells that were drilled in 1957, and they blow more gas today than they did in 1957. So it's uh, it's, it's quite a special little thing we have in the free state.
4: Phase 1 production is expected to start early in 2022. Could you explain the importance of what Phase 1 production entails and what Phase 2 will hold?
12: Phase one is important. It was financed by the United States government through their their equivalent of the IDC, a, a company called the USDFC or Development Finance Corporation, and it was it was financed by them with a you know, with a loan, a twelve year loan, of forty million dollars for the purpose of proving the concept that we were capable of extracting the helium and uh, and then exporting the helium. Now that's a project which we started constructing in uh, in late 2019, beginning of 2020, and from December we'll have hot commissioning. So that basically means that in December gas will be going into the plant. We'll be filling up the tanks in January, and then we'll be commercial around January February, depending on how the how the hot commissioning goes. Um, but that that sees us go into revenue production with a uh, with a pilot with a pilot scale project. Now. It's pilot, but let me put the numbers into context. Phase one will see 350 kilograms of helium per day in full production. Doesn't sound like a lot, but that's one and a half times South Africa's whole consumption. So it's a, it's a particularly rare and expensive commodity. The 2nd um, byproduct that that'll be produced at the plant is 2,500 gigajoules of LNG per day. So it'll be the first domestically produced LNG. And that LNG, in terms of energy, if you had to think of it as a, as a quantity of energy, it's about the same amount of energy of about 75,000 liters of diesel per day. Then we've got phase two. Phase two, we're aiming to try and bring online in 2024, and that will be that will be a big plot. That will be a properly, properly big plot.
4: The creation of the spot market in Helium, what's the thesis behind that, what, and what will be the benefits to Renogen and Renogen shareholders?
12: Elders. So right now the helium market is quite opaque. There are there are a handful of upstream producers, the likes of ExxonMobil, the United States government, the government of Qatar, the Russian government and uh, and the Algerian government. That's that's pretty much it. And then by, and then there are a few small producers here and there. Um, but they all sell as upstream producers to middlemen and those middlemen take this helium off them under long-term take or pay agreements. so contracts ranging from 10 to 15 years all under fixed price. Um, the end users are paying spot prices and so there's there's a very large gap between refinery prices and spot prices. So you'll have scenarios where refiners are selling helium at around call it 230 250 260 dollars US dollars per unit. Whereas the downstream end users, like hospitals for their MRIs, are paying anywhere from a thousand to a thousand three hundred dollars per unit, depending on location, depending on a whole bunch of things. So there's a, there's a very very large gap in between supply between upstream suppliers and the downstream consumers. And the the point of this is really to to coin the phrase from purple. It's, it's the democratization process of helium as a commodity. And the intention over here is that we're going to create some visibility in this market, much the same way that 10, 15 years ago, lithium had no visible price. Now there is a visible price. Helium is one of those commodities that needs to be brought into the market and have some transparency and visibility. And we we believe that this token, given the tools that we have at our disposal, is by far and away the most efficient way of doing that.
4: Who would be the participants in the helium market, i.e., who are the end users? or put differently, what drives the demand for helium as a commodity?
12: So pretty much everything that we do nowadays has helium behind it. So to put this in context, I mean, that's quite a bold statement, but yeah, this this conversation would not be taking place without helium because The microchips in the laptops and the and the tablets and the phones and basically all of our digital devices are all manufactured with helium and without the helium you can't manufacture them the the signal is going through fiber optic cable you can't manufacture fiber optic cable without helium Um, you go to the hospital for an oncology assessment you can't do that without helium um, and then obviously there's Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and uh, and now Google and all of these guys going into space. The fact is, is that you can't actually launch a rocket without helium. You can't run a nuclear power station without helium. The list goes on. It goes on and on and on. And basically, anything anything related to any kind of creature comforts that we hold near and dear to to our hearts and and pretty much everything that's running the economy right now. Take helium away and all of that disappears. And it's a finite commodity. And it's the only commodity which, once you use it, you never, ever, ever get it back. There is no amount of money on the planet that allows you to recycle it.
6: Funding For
4: junior miners often takes place through equity issuance, which ultimately dilutes existing shareholders. Will the creation of a helium spot market reduce the need for equity issuance for energy?
12: I believe so. Um, look, it might, it might not take away the need completely. Um, obviously, a lot of this depends on, on a number of factors. But... Um, if you think about what we've done, there's a there's a financial there's a financial um, arrangement called streaming, which is quite common. So you'll have your large commodity houses. Uh, we we all know who the big commodity houses are. Um, what they would do is that they would enter into a into a streaming transaction with junior miners, and so they would prepay for a certain amount of offtake, and the junior miner would then use that to be able to build their mine, and then they would repay that streaming contract by delivery of the underlying commodity and that allows the shareholders of the junior mine not to dilute at a critical stage essentially all that we've done now is that we've essentially taken that streaming concept and we've tokenized it and we've offered that to investors so that investors can interpose themselves in the place of the major commodity houses so we we believe that this is a really innovative transaction it allows Renogen to raise the capital that it needs Reducing or potentially eliminating—not sure yet—but uh, but reducing certainly reducing the amount of capital required to build the thing, and uh, and it does uh, it allows investors that would otherwise never have the capability of of participating in a streaming transaction to be able to use it by virtue of technology that we have today.
4: Lastly, Stefano, there's an energy crisis happening in the world, and you happen to be the man in charge of an energy company, so I'm sure you'll be decently well placed to handle the following questions. What's causing this crisis, and what is the solution
12: uh look there there are there are a number of factors there are a number of factors that have led to this um, some man made some not man made it's compounded with winter being around the corner um, I think it's it's fair to say and you know, I, I've, I've been on a soapbox since about 2017 saying whilst we have to reduce our carbon emissions, we need, to, we need to be very cognizant as to the fact that when you demobilize an oil rig, that takes about three months. When you remobilize a deep sea drilling rig, it takes about three years to get back into operation. And so the rate at which these rigs were being demobilized relative to the amount of time that it's going to take to get them back online was inevitably going to lead to an energy crisis. And I'd been saying that for three years. COVID stepped in the way, but I started saying that in 2017, and here we are. The fact is, is that it's going to take a while for these rigs to come back online. It also is not helped by the by the rhetoric that in order to go green, we have to shut down production of fossil fuel. Whilst I absolutely agree that we have to decarbonize and that we have to move to a scenario where we're completely renewable. Shutting down in the short term is not the answer because now the most readily available fuels are a lot dirtier than the other fuels that we were using. So inadvertently, we're creating a lot more pollution than we would have if we'd had a much more gradual and systemic approach towards towards the shutting down.
1: Well, thank you for being with us today, the 19th of October, 2021. We'll be back in your company again tomorrow with more of the news that actually matters. From the Biz News team today of Jared Neves and Justin Robertson, yours truly, Alec Hogg. Cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.